The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. May 6, 1996, started out like any other morning for Sherry Daly. After the 35-year-old mother of two dropped her young boys off at school, she headed to a local store in Ventura, California to do some errands. That's when she suddenly vanished without a trace. Join me now as we look into the sudden disappearance of Sherry Daly. You'll hear how her mysterious disappearance shocked families and friends and put the entire community of Ventura on edge. You'll also learn how greed, lust, and witchcraft tragically tore apart a family and forever changed the lives of all those involved. Born in 1961 in Lancaster, California, Sherry, whose maiden name was Gess, enjoyed your typical American childhood. Moving with her family to Ventura, California when she was still a child. Many people consider the coastal community one of the best places to live in the United States. With its near-perfect climate, friendly residents, and spectacular beaches, the city has always been a great place to raise a family. As Sherry matured into a teenager, she was the quintessential Southern California beauty, sporting long blonde hair alongside piercing blue eyes. She was always involved in plenty of extracurricular activities, such as 4-H, brownies, and pioneer girls. Sherry enjoyed being social, keeping herself busy, and spending time outdoors, making the most of the sunny Ventura weather. When she was a junior at Ventura High, Sherry met Michael Daly, an attractive and gregarious senior. Michael was even more popular than Sherry. The majority of Sherry's classmates thought Michael was handsome and charming. In fact, many of them dreamed of dating him. Michael was in part considered attractive due to his unconventional good looks for the area. He was nicknamed Hawaiian Mike, even though he was not from Hawaii. In reality, Michael could thank his mix of Mexican and Japanese heritage for his thick black hair and smooth tan complexion that drew the rapt attention of Sherry and her friends. Before long, Sherry and Michael started dating Sherry's parents, Ken and Carlin, adored Michael. He made a good first impression, and he was always sure to get their daughter home before curfew. 
After she met Michael, Sherry wasted none of her time on other boys. Her grandmother, Clarice Guest, soon realized Michael was the one person in Sherry's life he was her one and only love. Sherry and Michael appeared to be crazy for each other. It was no surprise to anyone when shortly after graduating high school, the pair moved in together. In 1982, Sherry and Michael were married in a small but beautiful ceremony, and for their honeymoon, they went on a much-anticipated cruise. Sherry and Michael settled easily into married life. He found a job close to home as a night manager at a Vaughn's grocery store in Oxnard. Michael's co-workers considered him a dedicated hard worker. They found him easy to get along with and appreciated his social personality. Sherry also worked at Vaughn's, but over time, the family struggled to make ends meet, especially once they had children. In 1998, Sherry and Michael had their first son, and two years later, welcomed their second son. Sherry finally took action and quit her job at the grocery store and decided to open up a daycare business out of their home. Not only would it allow more time with her sons, it would also generate a better income for the family. And it didn't take long before her home business was thriving. Running a business out of the family home also enabled Sherry to focus on pleasing her husband. Sherry's friends and family were constantly in awe of her devotion to Michael. She happily performed all the daily chores and threw herself into meeting Michael's needs. Because he worked the night shift, Michael often ate meals at unusual times. For instance, if he worked at 2 a.m., he wanted to eat at 1 a.m. before he left the house. Sherry would set her alarm and cook meals for Michael at any time of the night, sacrificing her sleep to ensure her husband was well-fed. Sherry would even get up before Michael did and turn on the shower to warm up the water for him before he got in so he didn't have to experience the discomfort of a cold shower. For Sherry, at the heart of a marriage was family. Her entire life revolved around her husband and children, and doing her best to make them happy. Many of the couple's friends and family considered Sherry to be a kind and doting wife any man would be lucky to have. But everything changed for the Daly family. On May 6th, 1996, when Michael got a call from his son's school informing him that Sherry had failed to pick up their kids at the usual time. Michael happened to be working a day shift and headed to the school to get his boys. When they arrived home, they found Sherry's daycare clients waiting to drop off their kids, and there was no sign of Sherry. After hours passed with no communication from Sherry, Michael reported his wife missing to the Ventura Police Department. Michael was then told he had to wait at least 72 hours before he could file a missing persons report for an adult, unless there were suspicious circumstances. That's when the parents of the children attending Sherry's daycare banded together and started a search of their own. In their minds, Ventura was a small town, and it shouldn't be too hard to find Sherry. 
after combing the streets for less than an hour, the searchers located Sherry's van in a Target parking lot. After looking into her van and seeing the keys dangling from the ignition and Sherry's purse in plain sight, they were immediately overcome with worry. Closer inspection revealed her recent Target purchases were also in the van, which led them to believe she had made it back to her vehicle before something must have gone terribly wrong. Michael rushed to the Target parking lot and in a panic, once again called the Ventura Police Department. This time, the police took the situation more seriously and launched an investigation into her disappearance. Extremely worried, Michael called their friends, neighbors, and Sherry's mom, telling them he thought she'd been abducted. Michael seemed beside himself with fear. Meanwhile, investigators arrived at Target and pulled the store's surveillance tape. Sure enough, they watched as Sherry entered the store, paid for her purchases, and then exited the building at 9.22 a.m. Nothing seemed amiss. The police said Sherry didn't seem stressed. All seemed normal. Unfortunately, the store didn't have surveillance cameras in its parking lot. But the officers did manage to round up witnesses who were able to share crucial yet disturbing information. One witness recalled seeing a woman waiting in a teal blue vehicle in the parking lot. The woman stood out because she appeared to be wearing a blonde wig and had thick pancake-type makeup on. It was as if she was wearing some kind of disguise. When the witness glanced at the license plate, they became even more curious when it was apparent it had been altered with a piece of cardboard. Other witnesses in the Target parking lot said they saw a teal-blue Nissan Altima pull up behind the van as if to block it from leaving. A woman got out of the car and walked to the driver's side window of what they now know was Sherry's van. After a short conversation, Sherry willingly allowed herself to be handcuffed and placed in the back of the vehicle. The woman wearing the wig and thick makeup also reportedly had on an official-looking tan pantsuit. Upon further questioning, every one of the witnesses told the police they thought they had seen an undercover police officer arresting a suspect. At first, the police had a glimmer of hope. Perhaps Sherry had been arrested by another law enforcement agency that had just failed to inform the Ventura Police Department it would be making an arrest in the area. After making some calls, the investigators learned that wasn't the case. It was looking more and more like Sherry had been kidnapped in broad daylight from a Target parking lot by someone posing as a police officer. After a long, stress-filled night, the following morning, Michael and his eight- and six-year-old sons distributed flyers around the neighborhood and surrounding area. When the media asked the young boys how they were doing, the oldest told reporters 
We love mom and we want her to come home today. Michael took the opportunity to appeal for Sherry's return. He told the press he was very concerned about his wife's sudden disappearance. It worries me because it falls out of Sherry's character. She wouldn't get into a car and get into the back seat with someone she didn't know and leave her boys. The Ventura community pulled together to try and find Sherry. Search groups were formed and teams of officials and volunteers continued to pass out flyers. News outlets also appealed to the public to come forward if they had any information about Sherry's whereabouts. The direness of the situation really hit home after Mother's Day had come and gone, along with Sherry's mother's birthday, with zero communication from Sherry. Any last vestiges of hope completely vanished. Sherry and her mom, Carlin, were especially close, and Carlin was positive if her daughter was alive, she would have heard from her. As investigators dug into Sherry's life, looking for clues as to who would have wished harm to her, they learned some startling news about Sherry and Michael's relationship. In reality, it wasn't as happy as it appeared on the surface. In fact, it had been falling apart for years. According to Michael's friends and co-workers, by the 1990s, Michael felt trapped in his marriage and was continuously unfaithful. He even started using cocaine because he enjoyed the rush of excitement and feeling of power it gave him. Michael started a long-term affair with one of his co-workers, Sally Lowe, who had just experienced a bad divorce. After her marriage ended, she was sad and vulnerable and easy prey for Michael. The investigators were starting to think Michael was especially good at detecting women with low self-esteem and who were willing to let him be in control. Because Michael often worked the night shift, he had plenty of excuses to be away from home in the evenings. Some of the time, though, he wasn't at work at all. He was instead spending the night with his girlfriend. Sally informed the police Michael had told her he loved her and wanted to be with her forever. But his wife, Sherry, made this dream impossible. Michael's affair with Sally didn't last, but that didn't mean he returned to being a faithful husband to his wife. Instead, he remained on the lookout. Things really began to spiral out of control when Michael invented a persona named Mark. His alternative persona had him spending more and more of his family's limited finances on time with sex workers and supporting his growing cocaine habit. Police then learned from Michael's friends and co-workers he'd been having a serious relationship for two years with a woman in her 30s named Diana Hahn, who worked with him as a deli clerk at Vaughn's. Their co-workers described Diana as an unremarkable loner who kept to herself and focused on her job. That was, of course, until Michael set his sights on her. Police discovered Michael and Diana considered themselves soulmates. They shared many interests, including love of travel and karate. Not only did they both have mothers from Japan 
and fathers who had been in the military, Diana and Michael were also intrigued by the occult, witchcraft, and reincarnation. Another fascination they shared was the idea of cutting people with knives. One of Michael's friends revealed, Michael talked about how Diana allowed him to bite her neck and suck her blood or his. He said he was on the dark side. After talking with Sherry's friends and family, it was apparent Sherry was aware of the many aspects of Michael's dark side, and apparently Michael did nothing to try and keep his affairs hidden from his wife. In fact, he did the opposite. For instance, he brazenly went on vacation with Diana and repeatedly brought his sons over to Diana's house. Sherry also knew Michael was using drugs. She was worried if he had drugs in the house, someone might find out and call Child Protection Services and take their children away. Police learned that in 1995, Michael had moved out of the family home. He told Sherry he needed some space to think things over. But in reality, he had moved in with Diana. When Sherry found out, her friends said she blamed herself for the marital issues. Sherry told them she had to win her husband back. Michael had been her true love since high school, and she couldn't imagine her life without him. Sherry didn't blame Michael for looking at other women to meet his needs. She'd gained weight during her two pregnancies and had never lost it, so thought it was her fault Michael had lost interest in her. Sherry did manage to lose close to 50 pounds in just a handful of months and began wearing revealing clothing and changed her hairstyle, all in an effort to appear more sexy to her philandering husband. In a move that both stunned and saddened her friends, Sherry even picked up Michael's car from the apartment he was sharing with his lover, waxed it, and returned it, hoping Michael would see how committed she was to saving their marriage. When Michael moved back after being out of their home for five long months, Sherry was ecstatic. She thought all her efforts had finally paid off, and she had finally managed to win back her husband. But in truth, Michael's friends and family told investigators the only reason Michael went back to Sherry was because he couldn't afford his drug habits and time with sex workers while trying to support two households. In no time at all, Michael was back to his old ways, calling Sherry fat and boring, and Michael and Diana continued to flaunt their affair. Diana went as far as to have a full-body image of herself silkscreened on a pillow for Michael to keep on the bed he shared with his wife. And if that wasn't humiliating enough, Michael had Christmas photos taken with his two sons and Sherry, as well as his two sons and his lover Diana. He even spent the Christmas holidays of 1995 with Diana and his boys, leaving Sherry home alone. The police later learned that during this time, things were slowly coming to a head. Diana was telling her co-workers how badly she wanted to be Michael's wife and mother of his two sons, while Michael was telling his friends and co-workers how much he hated Sherry and wanted her gone. 
After living through the terrible, lonely Christmas without her husband and children, Sherry confronted Diana on January 12, 1996, and told her, Get away from my husband and leave us alone. Just a couple of months later, in March of 1996, and less than two months before Sherry disappeared from the Target parking lot, Sherry confronted Diana once again, this time while she was at work. Sherry demanded that Diana leave her family alone. The more investigators learned about the love triangle between Sherry, Michael, and Diana, the more they wondered if they landed on what had led to Sherry's disappearance. They were starting to think Michael and Diana decided to do away with Sherry so they could be together, and Michael wouldn't have to share custody of his children or go through a costly divorce. Michael's behavior after his wife's disappearance bordered on the bizarre. He never participated in any searches for Sherry. Instead, he spent his time with his girlfriend Diana, shopping, eating out, and taking a set of jet skis in for repair. Michael was always smiling and happy and seemed generally unconcerned about Sherry. His friends informed the police Michael had even made a concerted effort to give away his wife's belongings right after she vanished. As if he knew, Sherry was never coming home. On June 1st, 1996, it became all too clear Michael had been right. Sherry was never coming home. Her skeletal remains were discovered down a ravine on Kenyatta Lager Road, a rural area in the northern outskirts of Ventura. Sherry's clothing and her dental records were used to confirm her identity, and the autopsy revealed the litany of horrors Sherry endured during the last moments of her life. She suffered multiple fractures to her skull and jawbone, which were likely caused by blows from a blunt instrument wielded with tremendous force. Sherry had also been stabbed numerous times in the face and chest with a knife. She was then decapitated with an axe, and her body was tossed down a ravine where it had been eventually found. The authorities believed this kind of vicious, up-close attack by another human being required an extreme level of anger and hatred. With all they had learned about Sherry's troubled relationship with her husband and her ongoing issues with Diana, the police homed in on the lovers. The police brought Diana in for more questioning and asked once again where she'd been when Sherry disappeared. She stuck to her original story. She detailed how she'd gone on a long exercise ride, spent some time sunbathing, and then rode home. Investigators were suspicious of her story, wondering if she'd invented her alibi, because it could account for long periods of time, but was difficult to actually confirm. One of Diana's co-workers had called into the Ventura police station to report Diana came into work over an hour late on the day Sherry had disappeared, and Diana had large visible scratches on her forehead. So during the interview, the police asked Diana to lift her hair and show them her forehead. Sure enough, 
two faded but distinct scratch marks were visible. Diana explained away the scratches, stating during her exercise ride, she'd fallen off her bike because a group of men startled her when they whistled at her. The police doubted her story, as they figured if she'd fallen off her bike, she would have also had some injuries to her arms and hands. Diana was now a prime suspect, but investigators knew they needed more evidence before they could charge her. They let her go and stepped up their search for the vehicle used to abduct Sherry. Their thought was that the teal vehicle was likely a rental car and could be linked to Sherry's kidnapper if a contract had been filled out. It was also possible the vehicle could contain forensic evidence if Sherry had been attacked in it. After extensively canvassing countless car rental places for a week, the police finally found the vehicle that was used to abduct Sherry, and it was at a local airport car rental. After accessing the rental agreement, the investigators discovered the car had been rented by a Diana Hahn. And the paperwork was signed in two places and initialed in five places with a green pen. For the investigators, there was little doubt Diana had rented the teal Nissan Altima on May 5th, the day before Sherry was abducted. The police were relieved to discover the rental car in question had been returned with a broken rearview mirror. Therefore, the car had not been thoroughly cleaned and rented out again. Instead, the company had sent the Nissan in for repairs, and it was more likely to still contain valuable evidence. A forensic examination of the car revealed there'd been an attempt to scrub the inside of the vehicle and to clean its carpets. However, plenty of evidence was still left behind. Whoever had tried to clean the car had missed some spots. A phenolphthalein test was used inside the rental car to look for blood. During this test, a chemical reagent is used that turns reddish pink when it comes into contact with hemoglobin in blood. The test indicated a lot of blood had pooled on the floor of the vehicle. Forensic investigators then used luminol on the interior of the car, and it basically lit up like a candle on the door panels and headliner. The forensic team believed the blood evidence in the Nissan indicated a violent struggle had taken place inside of the car. The investigators also found five long pieces of what looked like human hair. On closer analysis, it revealed they were not human hairs, rather the strands had an unusual arrowhead-shaped design on the shaft. Further tests determined the strands were fibers from a blonde wig. This supported the witness, who had claimed they had seen a woman wearing a wig abduct Sherry. A comparison of the miles traveled on the odometer with the numbers recorded on the rental agreement showed the vehicle had been driven 126 miles during the rental period. This corresponded with the distance Diana would have had to travel to abduct Sherry, dispose of her body, and then return the rental. 
When Diana was confronted about renting the same kind of vehicle that had been seen driven by Sherry's abductor, Diana denied any involvement. She said the signatures on the rental documents were obviously forged and suggested someone must be trying to frame her for Sherry's murder. The investigators brought in a handwriting analysis specialist to examine the rental contract. In the expert's opinion, a person forging Diana's signature would try to make it match her current signature. But the signatures on the agreement were noticeably different. After doing a little more digging, the specialist found the supposed forged signatures almost perfectly matched how Diana had signed her name 10 years earlier. The handwriting expert told the authorities Diana did sign the rental agreement. She may have thought she was creating a forgery, but unconsciously, Diana had fallen back on how she used to sign her name a decade earlier. The car rental agreement and the evidence found inside the vehicle was enough for the police to get a search warrant to search Diana's bank records. In the process, they noted Diana had written a check to a local wig store. When authorities questioned the worker at the wig store, they identified Diana and said she had purchased a blonde wig from the store. And the shopkeeper also mentioned Diana had specifically asked for a wig that would make her look like a police officer. Digging deeper into Diana's bank records revealed she'd written another check to a local department store. After visiting the store and accessing the details of the receipt, investigators learned Diana had purchased an official-looking tan pantsuit like the one worn by the disguised woman who had taken Sherry. Along with the pantsuit, Diana had also bought what many would consider to be a murder kit. Windproof matches, lighter fluid, a hatchet, crazy glue, a large plastic bag, and an axe. Given all the new evidence they had uncovered, police brought Diana for another round of questioning. After an intense eight hours of constant pressure, investigators thought Diana was ready to confess. To help push her over the edge, Diana was told Michael had informed them that she was the one who had killed Sherry. With her confidence visibly shaken, investigators decided to put her and Michael, who they had also brought in for more questioning, into the same room. They wanted to monitor Diana and Michael's conversation, hoping one of them would say something incriminating. To say this plan backfired is an understatement. Instead of causing Diana to cave and admit to killing Sherry, her visit with Michael renewed her resolve. Michael moved up close to Diana and said, look at me, over and over again until she was gazing straight into his eyes. He then repeatedly said the word, Kiai, a phrase used in karate to build up one's confidence. As a result, 
Diana's time with Michael pumped her up and brought her back from the verge of confessing. Even though their plan had failed, the police finally felt they had enough evidence against Diana. She was arrested for conspiracy, kidnapping, and Sherry's murder. Although Diana had finally been arrested, Michael remained free, but investigators refused to give up building a case against him. Michael had been at work at the time of Sherry's abduction. Police were sure that regardless of his airtight alibi, he had been the puppet master, pulling all the strings behind the scenes. Authorities were happy when they were able to uncover more evidence that pointed to Michael's involvement in Sherry's death. Sally Lowe, Michael's former lover and co-worker, came forward and shared. Michael had discussed with her how much he wanted Sherry dead. He even asked Sally if she would murder Sherry in much the same manner that Sherry had eventually met her fate. Police got a search warrant of Michael's home and discovered a letter from Sherry that was written to him just a few days before her death. In the letter, she informed Michael he either had to start rehab that coming Monday or she would be filing for a divorce. Sherry had apparently reached her wit's end and was ready to leave the only man she had ever loved in order to protect her and her children. The police believed this ultimatum is what compelled Michael and Diana to murder Sherry. With this new evidence in hand, six months after Sherry had been murdered, Michael was arrested. Diana and Michael were tried separately for murdering Sherry, and both of them faced the death penalty. Diana's trial was held first. The courtroom was packed with reporters and spectators. The sensational aspects of the case drew major attention. Throughout the course of the trial, roughly 30 Ventura police officers and 125 witnesses testified. Diana's lawyers, of course, tried to blame Sherry's murder entirely on Michael. But the forensic evidence clearly pointed to Diana. Witness testimony had linked Diana to the vehicle, plus DNA tests had been done on the blood found in the car. Samples taken from both Sherry's parents confirmed the blood in the car was Sherry's. The handwriting expert had established it was Diana who had signed the rental agreement. There was also all the checks Diana had written for the disguise she wore when she abducted Sherry and for the murder kit. The green ink used on these checks, as well as the rental contract, was forensically linked to the green pen Diana had in her purse at the time of her arrest. A string of other witnesses for the prosecution bolstered the case against Diana even further. People testified they had seen Diana purchasing a fake police badge and handcuffs. Another witness identified Diana as the person they saw in the ravine where Sherry's body was eventually found. A forensic investigator told the court the type of axe Diana had purchased would have made similar marks to the ones found on Sherry's vertebrae, suggesting the axe used during Sherry's killing 
was linked to Diana. Finally, one of Diana's co-workers told the jury, after Diana returned from her trip to Mexico with Michael, she mentioned she was considering performing a human sacrifice for a male friend's birthday and that he had picked the victim. Michael's birthday fell only two weeks after Sherry had been killed. The prosecution also presented the jury with a disturbing scenario of the final hour of Sherry's life. They suggested Diana had likely convinced Sherry she was under arrest for something related to Michael's drug habit. Convinced by this argument, Sherry allowed herself to be handcuffed and placed in the back of the rental car. At some point during the drive, Sherry must have seen through the disguise and recognized Diana as her husband's lover. This led to a violent struggle in the car and a handcuffed Sherry being stabbed multiple times, explaining the blood evidence found in the vehicle. Diana thought Sherry was dead, but when she took off her handcuffs, Sherry made one last stand and fought hard for her life. The prosecution told the court, at this point, Diana finished off her attack on Sherry by beating her and then beheading her with the axe. Diana then tossed Sherry's body out of sight down the ravine, drove back to town, and attempted to clean out the interior of the rental car before heading back to work. After a short deliberation, the jury found Diana guilty on conspiracy, kidnapping, and first-degree murder. When the verdict was read, the spectators, who had been following the proceedings outside the courthouse, broke into cheers. Sherry's mom cried, then smiled, whereas Diana's family sat still in the courtroom in shock. In the end, Diana's life was spared. During the penalty phase of her trial, she was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. After Diana's trial was concluded, Michael's case went before the court. Like Diana, he was charged with conspiracy and first-degree murder, and the state sought the death penalty, even though the prosecution was a little concerned about the strength of their case. They had no direct forensic evidence linking Michael to Sherry's murder, and he was at work at the time she was abducted and killed. But the state did have heaps of circumstantial evidence that suggested Michael played a key role in orchestrating his wife's murder. Michael's numerous affairs, drug addiction, and his blatant lack of concern after Sherry disappeared did not paint a good picture of the defendant. Michael's defense attorney, James Farley, even conceded Michael was not a good person, but he argued just because Michael frequents prostitutes, just because he smoked rock cocaine, just because he did not treat his wife the way she ought to be treated, that does not make him a murderer. Regardless, Beyond his narcissistic personality, 
Michael had plenty of financial motivation for wanting his wife dead. A month before Sherry vanished, Michael asked his boss at Vaughn's, who had a side job as a financial advisor, if he could somehow cash in Sherry's investments. When he was told he couldn't because they were in Sherry's name, Michael asked what would happen if something were to happen to Sherry. At which point, Michael's boss explained to Michael he would be able to cash in on Sherry's investments if she was incapacitated or dead. Additionally, Michael told his co-workers he felt people who got divorced were stupid because they had to pay alimony and child support. In his opinion, the whole process cost way too much money. He said he would never allow that to happen to him. Instead, he would make sure his ex disappeared. If Sherry did die, Michael would benefit from her $50,000 life insurance policy. On top of all this damning evidence, Sally Lowe once again testified about her affair with Michael and how he had asked her to murder Sherry. Sally laid out how eerily similar Michael's plan was to how Sherry was actually killed. The defense contended the witnesses were wrong. Michael had nothing to do with Sherry's murder. The facts were just the opposite. Michael had been actively attempting to reconcile with Sherry, but Diana went rogue to stop it. The defense told the jury it was all Diana. The plan was designed, conceived, and carried out by this psycho-crazed, whacked-out witch, Diana Hahn. The prosecution, though, presented compelling evidence that supported the fact that Michael had conspired with Diana to murder Sherry. Phone calls locked between Michael and Diana revealed the pair had been in near-constant contact during the crime. Diana called Michael every time she stopped from the Target parking lot while she was laying in wait for Sherry from Kenyatta Larga Road after she had committed the murder, from the car wash while she was detailing the car, and from the hardware store where she had bought cleaning products to help clean up. For the prosecution, this string of calls showed Diana had kept Michael in the loop every step of the way. It pointed to an obvious conspiracy. Just like Diana, in April of 1998, Michael was found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury had rejected the option of finding Michael guilty of the lesser crime of accessory after the fact, an option that would have carried only three years prison time. Two months after he was found guilty, the penalty phase of Michael's trial began. Sherry's friends and family told the court what a wonderful woman and mother Sherry was and how her loss had forever changed all of their lives. Sherry's mother told the jury the graphic visions of the murder haunted her and the jurors were played home videos showing Sherry hugging and kissing and playing with her sons 
celebrating their birthdays and having a rambunctious squirt gun fight with her father. The prosecution asked the jury to consider all that Michael had taken away from his children when he decided to talk Diana into murdering their mother. The defense, on the other hand, put a different spin on how Michael's sons should be considered when deciding on his sentence. The jury was told the boy's therapist had reported how much they missed their father, who they visited in jail every chance they got. Michael's father told the court it would be a further tragedy for the Daly children to also lose their father forever. Michael himself spoke to the jury and once again proclaimed his innocence, stating, I had nothing to do with my wife's demise. He said he didn't show what was considered by many to be proper emotions after his wife disappeared because he had been taught throughout his childhood to hide his feelings. He explained, I keep my love inside of me. I keep my hurt inside of me because it's no one's business. I didn't want sympathy. I didn't want anything from anybody. Michael went on to claim how he now hated Diana. Now that I know she murdered my wife, nobody could ever take Sherry's place. I made mistakes, but I loved my wife. I loved her deeply. Michael's jury ended up deadlocked on whether or not he should receive the death penalty, so they eventually settled on life in prison without the chance of parole, and the judge ordered him to pay the Guest family $15,000. In October of 2000, Diana appealed her conviction on the grounds the jury was prejudiced against her by the suggestion she had practiced witchcraft and had killed Sherry to perform a human sacrifice. In the appeal, Diana's lawyers argued allowing witchcraft to be brought into the trial introduced inflammatory evidence. The court decided Diana and Michael's love for witchcraft did play a role in Sherry's murder, and the appeal was denied. Diana and Michael had filed petitions for clemency, but to date, neither has been successful. They remain behind bars serving out their life sentences. Sherry's loved ones have publicly commented that the pleas for clemency do nothing but reopen old wounds. When both of their court cases had concluded, Diana was asked how she felt about Michael. She reflected, the Michael I had fallen in love with back then never existed. Diana blamed Michael for ruining her life and she accused the man she had once passionately loved of being a psychotic who had betrayed her. Even though nothing could make up for the loss of their mother, Sherry's sons were compensated $6.4 million for their emotional and financial losses in a civil suit against Diana. Diana had an annuity worth $1 million from a settlement she received over an injury she sustained in high school when a basketball backboard fell onto her head and put her in a coma for three months. Since the accident, 
Diana had been receiving payments every month, with the amount scheduled to increase every five years. Regardless, it's still unclear how much money the Dally brothers will actually receive, as Diana's annuity was already being garnished. Since the murder of their mother and their father's imprisonment, the Dally boys have been raised by Michael's parents. It upset some people that the boys refused to believe their father played any role in their mother's murder. Sherry and Michael's oldest son told the media, I believe that my father is innocent. I mean, as a family, before all of this happened, we were a very happy family. We did everything together. We were always there for each other in times of hardships, and I feel like my father would never do anything like that. Sherry's mom asks that her daughter not be remembered as a victim. Instead, she wants Sherry to be remembered as a loving mother, daughter, and friend. Sherry is buried in Ivy Lawn Memorial Park in Ventura, California, and her gravestone reads, In our hearts forever. Sherry will forever be in her son's hearts as they hold dear many precious memories of her. Thinking back about the type of person his mother was, one of the boys said that his mom was very outdoorsy. She loved going to the beach, and she was a very caring person, always very supportive, a great mother. We have lots of pictures of her. We have lots of fond memories of her. For me and my brother to keep her alive in our hearts. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce two podcasts, Apple for the Teacher. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic and shocking stories that I have uncovered in my own profession. You'll hear about murder, abduction, hijack, misconduct, student disappearance suicide, kidnap and ransom, and much, much more. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. So join me as I present People Behaving Badly, The Bad Apples. Looking forward to seeing you soon, but until then, remember to be a good apple. And Hillbilly Horror Stories.
Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct? This is correct. Never do. So then what happens when you don't know the show... I'm just as surprised as anybody else is. And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting. And I think that's been a success to our show so far. Yeah, I think it works. We also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show. So we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get to listen to paranormal shows. Amen. And that's what's important to us. So please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E I 